Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Selectionary the podcast that codifies the canon of films from the one of the world's greatest animation directors, Henry Selick. I'm Michael Leder. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm sewing them together for the first time. So join us in our quest into the glorious world of Henry Selick. Jake, Steph, welcome back. You know, I introduced this as the Selectionary... This is the stealth mid-season reboot as well. Yeah, this is like the the... Fast Five where we introduce Dwayne Johnson and we're kind of pivoting towards more action spectacle rather than focus on cars, right? Yes, I suppose. (laughs) It's Travis Knight, the Dwayne Johnson of the podcast. The takes are flying already. We're 30 seconds in. And does that make the rest of the Leica filmography Hobson Shaw? (laughs) When we get to the Furious 7 of Laika, that's when it really kicks off. And uh, now I'm just asking who's Han in this this analogy. Oh, yeah, yeah, because the timeline's all messed up, really. Maybe, actually, this is the Tokyo Drift, where actually the timelines merge on Tokyo Drift and then split out again. This is a way of saying, labouring the point, that this is the final episode of the Selectionary for now, because this is Henry Selleck's current final feature because he has Wendell and Wilde coming out very soon and it is our first episode of the Lycanography because he worked with Lyca Studios coming out of Portland Oregon on their first feature and they've gone on to make many features since which we'll now explore so the track does break from here the trail does fork in the road Mm. from here on out but I think it's not like we are drawing a line in the sand I think all of those future like uh, films and episodes are going to be tying all the way back to Nightmare Before Christmas and everything that we've already spoken about there. Uh, it's very exciting, a new, a new venture, our first, yeah, a Lego sequel, you know. We're, we're, re- we're rebooting, but carrying on the same story at the same time. Get the new fans in, serve the legacy fans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as one door closes, another tiny creepy one that you have to find... <laughs> A big old keyboard oh, opens is and the, we crawl into a fantasy world. Is the Lycanography like our other podcast? <laughs> <laughs> We're getting ahead of ourselves. Of course, this week we are talking about Coraline from 2009. 
you haven't watched that film in the decade or so since it came out, go away and watch it now. We'll be there. We'll still be here when you come back because we'll be going deep on this one. There's so much to talk about. Steph, before we start, can you tee us up with a synopsis recap? Of course. Wandering her rambling old house in her boring new town, Coraline discovers a hidden door to a fantasy version of her life. In order to stay in the fantasy, she must make a frighteningly real sacrifice. So Michael, Coraline's making some big sacrifices in the story, but you've made the sacrifice for us of going away and researching all of the context for this film it's a big one yeah i think looking at the document that's been constructed for this i fear this might be the biggest context section you've ever made even maybe bigger than some of the ghiblis hey don't don't set me up like that (laughs) set me up for a fall that's because (laughs) many reasons of course this is a film very close to my heart um this was one of the first films i covered as a young sort of movie blogger slash journalist way back when because I love the film as well, love the book it was based on. But this is so important to the this pivot we're making from the selectionary to the iconography because we're almost reintroducing a whole new cast of characters. So I think it warrants a little bit of a longer context. But where should we start? Last time on the Monkey Bone episode, we left Henry Selleck in director's prison because that film made $7 million on a $70 million budget. But there was one project bubbling away in the background. So Neil Gaiman, who we've talked about on this pod before, he wrote the English dub screenplay for Princess Mononoke. He was a a beloved comics writer, novelist, author. He was finishing off the manuscript for a kid's novella called Coraline, which he'd been working on for about 10 years on and off. He started it for one of his kids, finished it 10 years later for another one of his kids. Um, He shared that unpublished manuscript with Henry Selleck because he thought that it would make a great stop-motion film, and Selleck agreed. And he went to Bill Mechanic, who we mentioned um, on the Monkey Bone episode. He was that exec that greenlit Monkey Bone before he was kicked out of Fox, reportedly by Rupert Murdoch. But Bill Mechanic had started an independent production company called Pandemonium Films, and um, accepted this project, helped out Selleck. So Selleck had... Um, you know, on the one hand, a very collaborative author of a source novel and his exec behind him. But this was still the early 2000s, and of course, Coraline didn't see the light of day until 2009, so things did move very slowly, and Selick would talk about this period of his career being possibly the worst, the hardest times. Um, he worked on the script of Coraline for about a year or so, and... Um, then would break and go and work on other things, commercial projects. Um, one big gig he had in the early 2000s was working with Wes Anderson on the animated sequences in The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. Um, at Wes Anderson and Henry Selick really hit it off and Selick said he learned a lot from working so closely with Wes Anderson. And in fact, he was attached at one point to direct Fantastic Mr. Fox, the Roald Dahl adaptation that Wes Anderson instead directed himself and that became his first animated feature Um, and all the while Coraline was bubbling in the background um, there was a weird agreement this is really interesting to read about in interviews 
uh, when Bill Mechanic set up his new company, um, he agreed or promised that they wouldn't develop animated projects, some sort of deal he had with Disney. Um, so they pretended for a couple of years that they were developing a live action version of um, of Coraline, which is um, a really weird flex, right? Um, I think Henry Slate talks about meeting with Michelle Pfeiffer to play the other mother at one point in a live action mm-hmm. version, and they get Dakota Fanning involved when she thought she'd be playing the character in live action. Um, but all that changes uh, when Selick forms a relationship with a fledgling studio based in Oregon called Leica. He initially moves up there from his base in California to help flesh out a short film project that they were working on in-house called Moon Girl and that's finished in 2005 and he sticks around pitching Coraline to them as a project for them to take on. Now this is where things get long because we have to introduce Leica don't we? Let's start with the company before Leica that was called Will Vinton Studios, based in Portland, Oregon. Will Vinton was a, an influential, long-standing figure in animation and an Oscar winner as well. He specialised in claymation, so probably more on the Aardman side than the Henry Selick side. And it, possibly his most enduring work, at least in the mainstream, was um, uh, a bunch of characters called the California Raisins, which um, had their roots in an advertising campaign for um, for raisins in the 80s, but then became like TV stars in their own right and released like songs. Like I heard it through the grapevine. <laughs> they had a hit <laughs> with that. That was like a whole like, little media empire that came out of Will Vinton Studios. But um, once the 90s rolled around, they really started to struggle. Um, but they did have young local animators coming through the ranks. And one of them was a lad called Travis Knight. Um and he's like now the main character, the Dwayne Johnson, if you will, of the rest of the iconography. He was a keen animator, hard worker, and apparently something of a prodigy. But he also had something that none of his colleagues had, an incredibly rich dad. So that's Phil Knight, co-founder of Nike, and according to Forbes in 2020, the 24th richest person in the world. Um, Phil, probably um, spotting that Travis has found his calling, buys into Will Vinton Studio and um, increases that investment over the years until he has a controlling stake and he even edges Will Vinton out um, because he was facing bankruptcy. Um, So he kicked Will Vinton out of his own studio in the end. And there's a wild story from a feature I read, which I'll link to in the footnotes. Phil landed on the name Leica before he even knew that it was in reference to the space dog. Um, so we have, you know, we love studio names of the podcast and all these, um, you know, Ghibli and Ponoc and Cartoon Saloon, all these play places that really pick or labour over what their studio name is. And Leica, uh, apparently, um, uh, Phil likes w- words with K's in the middle, like Nike and Leica. Uh, so, but then if you think about the um, the imagery behind that, it's space dog, it's pioneering, it's the first mammal in space, but it's also the first mammal to die in space and be burnt up on on reentry. So uh, uh, is that a good, a, a, a good name for um, a vanity project like sinking millions and millions of dollars into stop motion animation? I don't know. We'll see. Um, but then Travis, who's only a handful of years into his career at that point, is suddenly given a place at the board of the studio. And he's like 30 or something. Um, let's put a pin in that story because there's another wild little um, stop off I'd like to make. This isn't Travis Knight's first career. Before he turned to animation, he rapped. 
and he actually released an album in the early 90s under the rap persona chili t <laughs> which is a, which is wild I, I mean he it was the actual album was produced by the bomb squad who were like public enemies production team so you know it's kind of as legit as a suburban white kid son of a billionaire could be <laughs> I, I I realize this context is getting on long, so, but maybe off off mic, Jake, Steph, I I recommend going and looking up the. H- music how video. how would you describe the music of Chili to you, Michael? I mean, it, 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 at least it looks like he's coming out in the slipstream of Vanilla Ice, but it sounds not bad because the Bomb Squad are a, a, re- a really good production team, so. Um, it doesn't sound bad at all. It's um, it just looks awkward because it's Travis Knight, who we now know as being a great animator and studio head, um, but he's you know wearing a backwards cap and you know, crouching in front of a camera, uh, spitting bars. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll we'll link to the YouTube music video in the in the comments. But um, anyway, he turned his back on what I'm sure was a very um, you know, budding career in hip hop to turn to animation, and animation was his calling. And Henry Selick himself said that Travis was one of the best stop motion animators in the world at that point, and he owed Coraline getting the green light to him. It was the project that Travis wanted to work on. And Selick went out and sought out a distributor, Focus Features over at Universal, and everything just progressed from there. So let's bear in mind this is the mid 2000s. This is a good decade after James and the Giant Peach, and so much had changed production-wise. And Selick, almost for the first time in a long while, had the support and the budget to realise um, this film on a scale previously unseen. So he got given $70 million for this film. And that's not $70 million because you know Brendan Fraser was expensive off the back of the mummy. This is $70 million because they wanted to invest in the, um, in the craft. And they had a cavernous warehouse for a studio with 150 sets, some of them massive and detailed, like the mansion at the heart of the film that they move into. They had 24 individual puppets for Coraline. The crew was like 450 people strong at its peak of production. They had motion control cameras allowing these beautiful movements and tracking shots through the miniature sets. This, this film uh, was pioneering in the sense that they used 3D printing to help create a lot of the sets and props and characters. It meant they could create hundreds of thousands of facial expressions for particularly like Coraline and all the other characters because they were printing off so many different facial features to use in the puppets. It was shot in stereoscopic 3D. Remember that was a thing in the 2000s. Um, So this was an immensely ambitious project. And the great thing about it, after 18 months of production, released February 2009 in the States, May in the UK, it was successful. It won critical acclaim and eventually took home like $120 million at the box office, another 40 odd million on top of that in the home video. It won Best Animated Feature at the BAFTAs. It won Best Feature at Annecy, shared with Barry and Max, the Australian film. And it was nominated for Best Animated Feature at the Oscars. Now, this is an incredibly stacked year at the Oscars. In fact, we've talked about this very best animated feature category two times before because it was the year that Cartoon Saloon had their nomination, their surprise nomination, some would say, for The Secret of Kells. Um, it's also the year that Ponyo wasn't nominated. It couldn't make it into this crowded field. So we know how we know Secret of Kells and Coraline made the cut in this year at the Oscars. Can you think of any other of the nominations or who won that year? Is it up? 
up one that year. So you have two other films. I've already mentioned one of the films in this context. Have you now? Oh, well, mm-hmm. Testing how much we've been paying attention, are you? Clever. Cl- classic teacher move. Um, what would have been out in 2009? Um, uh, how to Train Your Dragon. Nope, that's the that's the following year. Oh. Um, so so the, the the film I mentioned earlier was one directed by a filmmaker that Selleck greatly admired and worked with. Oh, and was fantastic, Mr. To, Fox. Yeah. And then the last one is Disney. Um, at the time, this was seen as almost a return to form for Disney. Certainly, a return to a filmmaking style they had. Princess and the Frog. Yep. Steph, I'm disappointed you didn't get the frog one. <laughs> I was about to say it. Jake jumped in. Sorry, Steph. Sorry. In your world, it's the frog and the princess. Yeah. <laughs> but that's it. So Coraline is a big hit and is still to this day beloved um, in a similar way to The Night Before Christmas. A lot of young goths were created by this <laughs> film or sustained through their teenage years by this film. Um, and weirdly, Henry Selick doesn't go on to make many films after this, but Leica go from strength to strength and have several films after this that we'll be talking about in future episodes. But before that, we do have to talk about Coraline, don't we? And maybe I could have a breather (laughs) while Jake and Steph, you tell me what you thought of the film. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, that was probably the longest context in Ghibli Attack history. But first, Jake, Steph, I want to know how this is running on from previous Selix. So who do I want to go to first? The person that liked Monkey Bone or didn't <laughs> like Monkey Bone? Jake, is this back on track after Monkey Bone? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> yes, yeah, this, this is considerably better than Monkey Bone. I'm, I'm willing to admit it. Uh, this this is really good um and it's so obviously the same filmmaker and, and a filmmaker that feels confident and rejuvenated and 
nicely not disowning monkey bone as well i feel like he learned some stuff with that film that he's brought to this too i think you really can see the evolution of him as a storyteller across these four films um even if we might want to ignore one of them um and in yeah in a way like there's stuff that i like in this film that maybe wouldn't be there without monkey bone so maybe i've got to give monkey bone it's due there <laughs> i'd say Coraline isn't as good without it um yeah i think this is this is well spoiling my my ballot later but this is for me the best thing that i've seen him do i think there's a real cohesion between form and story that we haven't seen i think um perhaps in his first two films he really wants to show you what he can do with the form he wants to showcase his skills as an animator um and maybe emotional investment in the story goes by the wayside or kind of a satisfying story. Um, and that's not to say the Coraline story is perfect, but I think it's uh, his film in which you get most invested in the characters and what they're up to. And formally, it is just stunning. It's so, so beautiful. Like particularly the, all of the stuff in the other world, um, the way it uses lights is just like nothing i've ever seen uh and god yeah i i like it a lot and there's lots to get into um we could we could go for you could go you i know you could have gone forever on your your context and we could probably go for long on our review but steph uh, i'm gonna hazard a guess and say you like this film yes decidedly more than monkey bone even (laughs) though i do defend monkey bone um I think, yeah, like a great place to start is just those opening credits sequences. Um, Like you said, Jake, you know, he's carrying some stuff over from Monkey Bone, that kind of opening title of close up creating something. And we get like the Coraline doll being all stitched together. It's kind of like a upside down underworld version of Woody being repaired lovingly in Toy Story. It's really kind of, yeah, detailed and close up and almost relaxing in a way but you can't quite be relaxed because it's so creepy and just you know from the get-go that this is going to be very kind of gothic very disturbing um and like very Henry Selleck I think this is probably the film where you know you're watching him the most like over the ones that we've watched um yeah, I think straight from the get-go it's that. And I think what grabs me so much in this film as well is just how smooth the animation is. Like, genuinely, the first time I watched it, I was like, are you sure this is stop motion? Because it's so... you like. I feel like there's points where you can tell and then there's points where it just looks like water flowing or whatever. Like, it yeah. just looks amazing. Um, and even, like, looking at behind-the-scenes um, videos of how they did certain shots and it's not even like they're using computer graphics for it it's like i think there's a bit where she gets um uh sprayed on the head by like a dirty shower um and that's just mad little fiberglass molds that they've made and it just looks like real water it's just the like level of artistry in it you can see where that 70 mil has gone on like making everybody move so smoothly well and i think that that opening is him like calling it shot as well like, i think that's the sign of a very confident person because he's replicating a thing 
that went down really badly opening it again redoing it and it's re- it's so focused on craft it's like putting the craft of the film under a magnifying glass at the very start and saying pay attention to how this is being made like really look at it because it is so well made <laughs> and and you can't not like this, yeah as i said the story is good but it's just astonishing to look at and Steph that movement I think we're seeing that evolution of his skill as as a as an animator who knows how to work the camera and he's benefiting from that technology that you mentioned Michael those motion sensitive cameras that can track the stop motion and give it so much more fluidity and momentum than we've ever seen and he does that we do get bits of that in a kind of twirling way in nightmare before christmas um and james and the giant peach but it's it's not kind of there all the time it's like these flourishes of movement and compared to fantastic mr fox which comes out the same year like that's a very stately approach to framing like that's a film in which the the camera would never move because you wes anderson wants to show you the world that he's built and you view it in these perfect vistas whereas it's quite amazing to see such abandon with the movement of the camera considering the world that's been built like he really throws it around and it feels like a horror film because you get these crash zooms you get these dutch angles and you get these dolly shots in there and these are real live action techniques and quite in enlarged techniques that i think feel at home from monkey in monkey bone as well and yeah it's both the combination of the things that have been built in front of the camera and the way the camera captures them is, is so perfectly matched here. The, the, the technique that comes to mind as you're listing those off, Jake, there's so much, so much first person mm-hmm. in this as well, where you're looking through Coraline's eyes. And that's something that is it's, it's, it's testament to their technology where they create these, they create this huge mansion sets and the gardens outside I'd, I'd recommend anyone go and look up some behind the scenes pictures of this because they are just massive sets and then the cameras really can go up close to these puppets and really scrutinize all those details um it's yeah really beautiful and i think all the way back on i think the james the giant peach episode which um i had that quote from him which was how he characterized both nightmare before christmas and james the giant peach where he said he likes go he likes stories which go through portals into other mm-hmm. worlds, but he also likes he also believes that a story should be as simple and as straightforward as possible, so that the animation can then fly off in different directions and then be experimental and be expressionistic. And I think both those, if those are the two motifs and modus operandi of Henry Selick as a filmmaker they're achieved really well here because structurally story-wise all we have are two worlds connected by a tunnel and our character is just bouncing back and forth between them um visiting the same characters in each and how how they're different on both sides of that tunnel and then then a final sequence an absolutely pure sequence towards the end which we can talk about later but it's um it's full of ideas and we've said before about this almost variety show idea that he brings which is ideas led creativity led design led where you'll have 
a dance sequence or a musical sequence in these films just because he's kind of showing off because he wants to show that this is what animation can do um and that returns here um is that something that uh, was it was he successful there on on, the, on that front is he showing us, us something new or is it all, all old hat to us by now um i i think it, it's it felt similar to the way that he's presented stories before and that you it's like this showcase where you get your the gymnast man that is upstairs and he does his routine and then you get the circus bit and you're bouncing around and like all of that is the stuff that i really love about it I think it's in the last half an hour that the film falters from a story perspective uh, because it. I, I'm very happy to just spend time in this world to wander between the two of them and I don't really need m- much in the way of heightened stakes. Um, and I think it, it's just um, a bit uninspired maybe in, in the final act when it suddenly becomes a bit of a MacGuffin hunt and you have to find these these three balls from these three ghosts and i don't the care. eyes of the dead children yeah like, like they're creepy that are planted around yeah like they're creepy and they allow for some for us to explore some beautiful locations and you get that great bit with the the mower that's also a mantis and <laughs> that that's really cool but also i don't care uh like that it's just it's just a bit kind of tedious that it had to go down a quite obvious route to spur up uh, an action-led final act um well, but I, th- I think that that's part and parcel with the fact that this is a kid's novella yeah. and that's that's that is more, probably one of the parts of the film which hues more closely to the book um because it does have to show the monster and then subvert the monster yeah um, well i think I, I, I think like because your your emotional attachment to Coraline is the thing that carries you through and so then when you need to shift that emotion towards these other characters you don't you don't feel it in the same way like you are invested with her because she is so well crafted you've got all that f- details of the face you've got her interactions with her parents like it, i think it's really well observed um for stop motion which takes so much time you, it feels so natural in the way that they move but the way that they interact as well like her just kind of aimlessly swinging a door and it's squeaking and annoying her dad. It's just so instantly irritating. Or this, the way that a sound, a screaming child's, the sound of that from another room demanding something, it really paints a vivid picture of their family life. And it is that family that is the core of it for me. Um, because, yeah, it, to me, it's like this is about adolescence and kind of breaking away from doctrination uh and kind of orthodoxy that's presented in front of you and you can step away from that and it's good to be independent but also you can kind of embrace the mundanity of your parents as well like you you don't need to be entirely separate from them and you don't need to just fall in line and i like that i don't need dead ghost kids to make me feel more invested in that an aspect i understand that an aspect of this that really struck me on this watch um in a similar way to how the nightmare before christmas struck me as a midlife crisis film rather than a uh, finding my people kind of identity film is that this film and the story as well has almost like a two-pronged thematic approach so it has why is this scary for kids because there is the grass is always greener kind of aspect of well what if my parents were cool and uh, loving and perfect and all that stuff and the uncanniness around that but seeing this as a film written by a parent and 
then to, you know put to the screen by adults as well there's something in here that is almost like a parental anxiety thing because when i'm you know we we, we are all right now mostly working from home in the middle of a heat wave where we are just like the dad in this just slumped <laughs> over our laptops <laughs> we're, we're living the meme it was quite fun to see that meme in the wild of the film exactly yeah, that has um, been all us we are we are all him and uh this coming out of a period of Neil Gaiman's life where he was um, a, a struggling writer, having his first success, but still very much having to pump out a lot of words per day uh, and having a kid probably having that anxiety of I wish I was this parent that could be providing everything this person needs. But anyway, what you're saying there, Jake, is a really interesting encapsulation of something we've talked about on this podcast before. Would you prefer this film if this had an ending like Spirited Away, where it collapsed all the third act into... <laughs> <laughs> into two minutes <laughs> i think i might you know i uh and then you just have a 10 minute slideshow of all the locations um i i i yeah it's it's a funny one and i get why it's there and i can see the demands that would have been made to make it happen um but i other than the thrill of kind of doing a a, a world collapsing plus car chase that looks like a bug sequence i i can't imagine that Selleck is maybe as invested in the emotional beats of what's going on. But it, as we said, it looks amazing. And that you mentioned the uncanniness of it, like mo kind of moving on to the way that these, these worlds have been built. I think it's fascinating and I can't quite put my finger on exactly what makes it so strange because the real world kind of looks unfinished. Like it looks like someone's built a model world a mo like a doll's house and forgotten about it like it's got these big brush strokes over all the furniture that look like it's been made by a child for dolls to live in so it kind of feels empty and it's all kind of low saturation in the colors but then you move to this the other world and it's bright and it's beautiful but between them it's like our world house is ugly and it's barren and it's cold but it feels homely and the other world is like this beautiful and bright thing, but feels unsettling. <laughs> and it does such an amazing job in making you feel that, but not being able to nail down exactly why. And that only adds to the unsettling feeling of watching the whole film. You I think, think that's you just... where the like emotional connect, like I found quite a lot of emotional investment in the film. I think especially with like Coraline and her mum, mm. because that's the main kind of like conflict in the film is like, she doesn't feel like her real mother like understands her like they're constantly kind of butting up against each other in that kind of you know early teen girl and mum way that can like happen quite a lot and they just like butt heads all the time she has a lot you know to say about you know you're a gardener you have this mug that says i love mulch but you never go out in the garden <laughs> like you're just sitting at your laptop all day um and i think that's like maybe part of the why the the real house feels so kind of empty because it doesn't have like any passion mm. from the parents in it. Like they're obviously providing for her, but she doesn't see like love. Like she feels lonely. She doesn't feel understood by them. And then like the other mother, you know, gives her everything she wants, but I don't like, she doesn't actually understand her or want to, she just wants her to be, you know her little minion i guess yeah um and i think like a scene that really really touched me was when 
um they're at the uniform store and she really wants the pair of gloves and you know her mum's doing the whole like no stop complaining blah 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 like leave me alone you'll get what you're given but then she like goes back and buys the gloves for her because she recognizes that she's like sacrificed a lot and mm. like by moving out there and moving for her parents um and that's something like that the other mother would never do so i think there is a lot of like emotional connection in there um it's just yeah you know it's quite subtle within that like grand world yeah. and all of this crazy stuff and and that kind of really mad third act of you know the spider mother and that void world and stuff um. <laughs> i think that's something that's quite almost wise and subtle about the storytelling here is that um the parents are failing parents only for a short while it's actually in in the in the grand scheme of Coraline's life and the parents lives it's just we have a project that we're both working on mm. we don't have the money to buy those gloves and we don't have the time to go and cook please hold on Coraline but in like a kid's from her point of view oh my god life is so boring and dragging on for mm. ages why have you pulled me away from my mm. friends so that's why I like that ending that ending isn't that the parents came to some great realization that oh we've been ignoring Coraline it was just the simple fact of the catalogue got approved and we now have some money to splash out on yeah. nice food and gloves well, I think that's yeah and you have the 20 minutes before that that you don't actually need that you could snip out and they come to that revelation um like <laughs> in a way it's um it's quite a hosseder final act in that the kind of the stakes entirely change and you in, enter a white void space in which things are on a kind of geometric grid grid are disappearing. Um, <laughs> but for, for me, that that's that is just showing off, right? Because that's him playing with tools that he didn't have in the early nineties, where he could. I mean, that is very VFX heavy. What they're doing there, being able to suspend these characters in in voids and have the world peeling away around them. Oh, that this was by far the best 3d film i saw at the cinema back when 3d was a thing for a few years um particularly sequence every time the tunnel unfurled mm. when the other dad has the um the player piano with the hands that pop out um and when that that bit where the entire f the, the the floor falls away underneath Coraline um in that final act all that stuff is just it's just showing off mm. really it, it but it works really well and it gets to the heart of Henry Selleck, where he's... This might, might be something we'll talk about with Leica as we, as we go on. He is a, I've said this before, experimental filmmaker at his heart, working within mainstream filmmaking. And he wants to bring in these experiments and isn't just purely trying to make films with stop-motion characters, although he is using lots of filmmaking techniques. He does want to have a lot of fun and bring in some visual ideas as well. The, the the idea about this this final act and the creepiness and the horror aspects, there's all sorts of stuff that um, Selleck has touched on in interviews, and I don't think it's ever really fully been, you know, um, f fully been expanded on. But um, Leica and Travis Knight always backed him. So for, for a change, he had the studio and the person who had the, the, the purse strings on his side. But Focus Features and Bill Mechanic were quite jumpy about this film. And they kept bringing in very conflicting notes like Pixar's doing really well, make it lighter. And then Harry Potter comes out. Oh, you should make it darker like those Harry Potter movies, make it scary for kids. At one point, um, Henry Selleck had written this as a full musical. And They Might Be Giants, um, the 
alt pop band who did have they do have one song the um other dad's song which is also the, kind of tiktok famous yeah they did the theme tune for malcolm in the middle plus lots of hits before that birdhouse in your soul um lots of tiny tunes adventures music videos as well um but yeah so the um making up a song about Coraline song which is uh is they might be giants but they wrote 10 songs for 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 this they demoed a lot and then it was scrapped at one point that it wouldn't be a musical and it would be a a feature film in this way so it did change a lot as we've said before there are all these sort of slightly jumpy execs in the background or creative forces but i feel this one landed in a way that is a real testament and almost the perfect version of of Coraline Mm. although people do like to dream um we we, there's this there's a note on our on our document here that we've got to get to um and my way of teeing this up is uh, I was very privileged I was like 21 and I didn't know anything about films and I had the opportunity to interview both Neil Gaiman and Henry Selleck about this film separately and it was amazing of course but one thing that always stuck in my head is that when I asked Selleck about his influences and what inspired him, he said that Hayao Miyazaki inspired him. Mm. And I think at the time I was like, oh, what an interesting thing to say. He must just be dropping that name because it's the, it's the current big name. But now that we're going back through these films and we're seeing how he really does like to tip the hat to all these other filmmakers when he can show off different types of animation, there are a lot of weird Ghibli parallels in here. Which some of some of which are in the Gaiman book, so of course where all the Gaiman's got a connection with Miyazaki too. But we should go through these. <laughs> I mean, I guess the big one is the very story is about a girl in that sort of tweeny or early teeny um, years being taken away from her friends and moving house. Yeah. Uh, Why? Well, um, so you got a bit of Totoro there. You got a bit of Marnie there. You got a bit of Spirited Away there. Absolutely. That's. I mean, that's something that they return to. We have a black cat that sometimes talks and sometimes doesn't, and has a sort of magical aura to them, which is Kiki's delivery service. We have. I mean, the whole section early on in the film where they're opening up the doors and she's looking through the house and rattling windows and stamping out bugs in the in the bathroom that's very Totoro as well you also have one of the voice actors of the sisters in Totoro in the Disney dub you have the elder one in this case Dakota Fanning um a dorky friend I I think YB I've never I've never felt more seen than with YB (laughs) um because you don't often, particularly in sort of mainstream American animated films, just get someone who is such a unrepentant dork as he is, <laughs> and particularly the way he's animated. Oh, the, the way, way he holds always, himself is so yeah. funny. He's always shrugging and like he's sort of curling up into a ball with anxiety, and the way his head is lolling to the side. There's one bit where he's where he walks backwards into a sort of backflip tumble, <laughs> just because of a ball of anxiety, which is just wonderful. But he's kind of like Tombo, mm. isn't he? Like a sort of boy that the main character, the very willful female character, is just sort of like she's just tolerating for the majority <laughs> of the film. <laughs> and then, of course, kidnap parents. Mm. Um, and a witch-type antagonistic figure who likes games in order to get those parents back at the end of the film. It's There's a lot in there, right? Yeah, we've said as well in the past few episodes, oh, you know, this film's a little bit like Spirited Away. You go on this weird journey. You just have to not question it, just go with it. 
Um, and this is kind of the one, right? Like all the parallels you've just listed. I think, you know, when she asks the cat why he can talk and he's like, I just can. It's like, yeah, that whole kind of <laughs> don't question it. Just come on this journey with me and let the whole thing unfold. We don't need to explain everything. I think just has such kind of Miyazaki energy to it. This one, probably the most out of all the Selix that we've done so far. Yeah. Also, it made me think of um, like May crawling through the tunnel to encounter Totoro and that, that magic is just this thing that is kind of right on your doorstep and you just have to go through the tunnel and you'll get there, which of course we saw in James and the Giant Peach too. Um, and yeah, as as you said, like that that's what he wants in his stories, that it is just, you just have to go through this portal and there it all is, which is very, very Ghibli. That's very Cat Returns as well, that it is just if you you kind of walk in the right direction eventually this magical place will reveal itself to you oh and you also have something that we probably forget about uh because we talked about ghibli so much over the years just the very concept of transformation mm. and the possibilities of animation to distort and contort and change characters and that's something that um i suppose is aided by some of the technological advances from you know that, that you know that, that had come about in the years since Nightmare Before Christmas and James Giant Peach, but some of those transformations, when the other mother turns into her um, tall, dark, evil self, uh, there's that. But then also um, the the mouse that turns into a rat with this mm. when the sand is bleeding mm. out when it's bitten by the cat. There are so many of these moments where there are these technical visual effects flourishes that feel very Ghibli-ish to me, these characters that aren't what they seem or change uh, at will. Mm. Well, kind of to counteract the, the Ghibli-ness of it all, there's some, something that I that, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way was the way that the film deals with, with food and weight as well. And I, I th- I, I, it's kind of a slight body-shaming film that I felt. Like it's in the, in the, in the other world, you have the, the two performers who are revealed to actually have been wearing fat suits uh, and that the the main villain becomes this kind of ultra skinny figure as well. And the fact that the the only nice looking food that we see in the film, which l- does look really good, is in the other world as well. And maybe that's just because I get too obsessed about food stuff. But I don't know, it kind of felt like it was saying like, whether, whether you might be larger or very skinny the idea of enjoying good looking food and it is like bacon and eggs and stuff not the healthiest but just saying that that's bad and that kind of did leave a bad taste in the mouth and it's kind of seems like an a bit of an easy gag as well in both cases an easy way to show someone as villainous or as kind of to ostracize someone um Mm -hmm. And I don't know, just uh, I feel like maybe wasn't considered at the time, um, but maybe perhaps wouldn't be done in the same way now. I, I just took it as because whenever she opens the fridge in the real world, it's literally just like a mouldy piece of bread mm. or like an old banana peel or what. Like it's just kind of mush. So her kind of whatever she wants materializes mm. in the other world. And that's kind of, you know a literal gravy train or yeah. huge pile mm-hmm. of mash. Or oh, I like that it's chicken. proper gravy and not American gravy. What's <laughs> American gravy? American gravy is like oh, no. uh, like white and creamy 
and it's that kind of looks more like the texture of a bechamel and you have like biscuits and gravy which is actually just scones with like a white creamy sauce um and this was flavor is the gravy i've never had it but if you google biscuits and gravy it's a funny looking thing don't do it it's not digestives and uh packs yeah so yeah (laughs) first first time i heard someone say biscuits and gravy that's what i imagined and it felt horrible um but michael just going back to what you're saying about it almost being a musical i think you have got like there's a lot of artifacts of it in there not just the show pieces and the performance bits and doing the song and all of that but like in the music of the film too and we like that draws us back to another one of our studios and cartoon saloon because we have to talk about bruno coulet <laughs> I, I, I like his score a lot yes. in this. I think that it's um, it's Danny Elfman at various points, very sort of gothic and, and strange, but also very, very pretty, mm. and then almost creepily pretty at other times. Yes, yeah, that's exactly it. So it's like, it's lush, but also unsettling, and it's hymnal and euphoric, but it's also very mysterious as well. And absolutely... It's one of these things where I heard it and it kind of sounded familiar as well. It sounded like it already existed. Some, like the same way that he would use music in the cartoon saloon films that are steeped in folk tales where it's, it is original music for the films. But again, it feels like it's steeped in kind of centuries of history as well. It makes it like adds to that uh, kind of folk tale ghost story feeling of Coraline. Mm-hmm. I think the songs that are... I guess, diegetic in the film. So the, um, yeah, making up a song about Coraline and the, <laughs> the kind of older ladies uh, performance song. You can, I feel like you can kind of see where something like Over the Garden Wall has got its musical influences. Those kind of, those songs that like you make up with your family or kids make up and they don't, they don't fully register as a fully complete, you know, three minute song, but they're very catchy and, you know, they just kind of spout it out as you're like at dinner or on a walk or whatever. Um, I think that really like, I think it, it does really well in that sense of um, having songs like that. Mm. It's fun that we've had so many musical elements yeah. in this yeah. kind of first half of the series. Yeah, I, I think that would be top of my list if I ever got to interview Henry Selick again, because every time he has some sort of, he, he clearly loves pop music. Um even though it's not always there in the final cut. So if he wanted They Might Be Giants to score this film or he wanted Andy Partridge from XDC to do the songs for James Giant Peach, of course, Danny Elfman was in a band before he was a composer. There's a lot of these connections. Um, and then, of course, uh, um, uh, Brick House, etc. Mm. Let's get it on. Foxy Lady from Monkey Bone. Great, yeah, great, music. great scenes. Um, Oh, Michael, in your in your research for the context, something I wanted to ask was about lights, because I thought this is like from when between James and Giant Peach and this, you got the evolution of LED lighting, which allows like really bright lights to be really, really, really small. And and I think looking at the set like this must be all done on LEDs, um, like the internal lighting, because that's the thing that I think is just staggeringly beautiful and which we haven't really seen in other stuff before. Whereas you might light a scene with studio lighting to make sure everyone's face is clear or not clear, depending on what you want to do. It's like the actual lights in the scenes in the film are amazing. Like the wardrobe that's a bug and has got a light within it 
and the, the oh, little, the little eye luminescent bulbs that light books, up. Yeah. Like, and when you when you have that wide shot of the garden and all the bulbs and the dragon snappers and like it's all the, these, well the the bulbs of the plants and the bulbs of the bulbs. Um, but they just they they it just looks unreal. It's so so good. And I just think you couldn't have done it when, and when he was making his first two films because, again, the, the technology just wasn't there. Yeah, and we should shout out Pete Kozacek, who is the cinematographer, director of photography, who works across all these films, who is a, not, not only DOP for stop motion like this, he's also a visual effects artist. So he's completely up to date with all that technology and technique. And mm. it's great to see that partnership flourish over, you know, 15 years between... Uh, this film and Nightmare Before Christmas are just the technology mm. um, that's at their disposal. And they, um, they do then, like to show off as well. Like they're a great one for staying through the credits for that. Yes, they are. But, but, but you have like the high tech stuff. And what I love is that it is a pure marriage of high tech and low tech because for example, uh, they, for some of the garden greenery, they got popcorn and painted it. I think <gasps> I believe that's what it was. Or, you know, they, they have Steph's, um, Probably your favorite part of the scene, Steph, the miniature in, the miniature knitting, yes. where uh, literally like knitting the um, the clothes for the characters with uh, hair hair thread thin needles. Yeah, um, well, there's some really good behind the scenes of Althea Chrome who who did mm-hmm. the miniature knitting. Um, there's good videos videos of her making Coraline's little blue star jumper, and it's just I just don't understand how she did it. <laughs> um but i was yeah i really like the um the two older ladies knitting little outfits for their dogs as well um in the event that they die and have them stuffed <laughs> yeah some good some good knitwear in this film those, those dogs that I, I i would love to meet a scottish terrier that has the temperament of those dogs having owned the scottish terrier and having met many other scottish terriers they have far too much energy <laughs> a scottish terrier is just a, a lump that is that like flops around the floor uh it might as well be a cushion that occasionally sprouts <laughs> legs and wanders around the, the, these are not not my scottish terriers um, we could talk for two hours on this film absolutely one other thread i wanted to bring up because you were mentioning spink and forcible the two old ladies time and again and i, I agree with you jake about like the sort of um fat shaming potential aspect but i think that that's just it's henry Selick in terms of the soup that he's emerging from pop culture wise he's very Roald Dahl isn't mm. he and Roald Dahl doesn't you know will, will paint larger characters as as being negative or antagonistic in some way although I think it's more that they are clearly yearning for this bygone era where they were these stick thin um, dames of the of, of, of the theatre world they're voiced of course by Dawn French and Jennifer Saunders which um, completes the happy families of having Joanna Lumley in James the Giant Peach, mm. so you have both of um, Jennifer Saunders on screen, kind of collaborators for absolutely fabulous, and then French and Saunders. But he clearly loves British comedy, British TV, and British actors, um, and closes that loop here. An interesting bit of trivia: I'm not sure how verified this is. Um, is that um, so? Spink and Forceful. I can't remember which way they're round. They are. There's the short, fat one and the tall, larger one. Um, of course. One, you know, Dawn French is shorter than Jennifer Saunders, but they voice the opposite way around uh, to what you'd expect, and that's because they originally did record the, those characters, but it didn't sound right, so they swapped ah, characters. That's interesting. <laughs> um, so you have Jennifer Saunders voicing the shorter one, and Dawn French the, the larger one, which is a weird quirk. 
of, of, of these films but he clearly loves british actors within this big soup of inspiration that he's drawing from and loves enormous boobs <laughs> as well that's the mon- that's another monkey bone aspect right yeah into this. <laughs> yeah oh actually so on the monkey bone-ness of it um like getting a getting a pet to jump into a rucksack which is not something you see in much media whatsoever but quite strange that two films out of four involve a character asking their pet to jump into a rucksack <laughs> well i think it's it's time to tag ourselves as we've been doing uh in all of the henry Selick films michael tag yourself who are you i mean can, can i be yb i've already <laughs> made my case for how i'm yb <laughs> jake um, I'm going to be Coraline's dad, but when he's presenting his dinner to the family, uh, and that that feels like when I've been given the reins of the kitchen, uh, and my partner is far more skilled than I am, and I I feel like I'm always presenting some kind of slop, and I I genuinely couldn't tell you what on earth that man has tried to make there because it it looks rancid. <laughs> he tried his best. Yeah. Um, on, I've already Steph. mentioned it, but I'm probably the I heart mulch mug. <laughs> that Coraline's mum has start. so many good little details in this film just you want to pause and look at all of the mm. all of the writing and backgrounds and and this is one I don't know if how much is if there is an art of Coraline book but this is one where all of the design work all of the concept art they had um a, a guy called uh, Tadahiro Uesugi who did the art who would then go on I think he worked on Luca in fact he worked on Big Hero 6 but um uh John Classen who's like now quite a massive name in kids' picture books, uh, worked on this early in his career. It's like all of the concept art is just amazing. Um, it's worth looking up or maybe tracking down that book if there is one available. What a film. We could talk for hours and hours and hours, can't we? Uh, hopefully that's just um, scratching the surface of Coraline. But we've got a more important thing to do, which is to see where it comes in our top motion personal rankings let's get to it okay guys this is the hardest part or maybe actually no maybe not this week maybe not the hardest part we'll find out top motion we've got to rank these films is it better or worse than monkey bone it comes back to that question of course (laughs) jake i'll come to you first where does Coraline land um Coraline is is far and away the top for me um most I've been invested in the story in the characters and as a piece of craft just astonishing um just a, a remarkable piece of filmmaking uh so it, yes Coraline at the top then James and Giant Peach then Nightmare Before Christmas um then in the other leaderboard in hell <laughs> yes it's Monkey Man <laughs> Deep at the bottom of the old well, <laughs> where it can't bother you anymore. Steph? Um, I'm struggling. I think Coraline just about inches into first place for me. But I still have so much love for The Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, so yeah, Coraline first, Nightmare second, Monkey Bone hanging in there at third. I still think it's good. Uh, and then James and the Giant Peach is last for me. You know what? Yeah, I'm going to put Coraline first as well. Um, this rewatching it for this episode really confirmed it for me. I think this is one of the great animated films, maybe films full stop, that have come out in the time that I've been an adult writing about films. 
it really feels like a almost a miracle this film got made in the way it did with all of the creative aspects behind it that it came out the way it did um and as a nexus point between all these stories that we like to talk about on ghibli attack this is the one so Coraline, the nightmare before christmas they are the two jewels in the crown james the giant peach and monkey bone lagging behind um well, that's quite nice like last week we, we were chaos distance. where we all had different rankings and now, now there's a little sense of unity to it so now the question is this if we put a pin in this for now and say for the selectionary mm. that is our rankings for the films mm. of henry selick uh, and now of course the gates the floodgates are going to open oh so Coraline gets the privilege of being in in both as well are we do, do we do separate rankings it's not really fair to rank the the or is it we could do we both. Called it, Let's we, do we both. Called, we called it Top Motion to encompass mm. the whole mini, the double miniseries, yeah. I think. Um, but Coraline sits top of the heap and, and with a consensus vote as well for the selectionary. We'll see whether Wendell and Wilde can trouble that mm. top spot, I suppose, when that comes out later in the year. Wouldn't that be exciting? Mm. But for now, we are sticking with Leica. That's right. Next week, we will be getting a bit of paranormal activity. Um, and if you want to be getting some extra details and info and videos and articles about everything that we've been talking about in this episode and the whole series, become a patron because Michael has been putting together these fabulous footnote documents uh, that all of our patrons get, as well as access to our bonus library cafe episodes. And we're going to be adding into those episodes discussions about films that we've just talked about as well. So look out for episodes on The Life Aquatic with Steve C. Sue and Fantastic Mr. Fox uh, and another diversion into live action filmmaking too as we further explore the career of Travis Knight beyond Leica as well. Uh, so all of that's happening on the Patreon. Look out for it. Um, but if you want to just keep up with us and what we're up to, uh, you can follow Ghibliotech on Twitter where we're at Ghibliotech. Uh, we're on Instagram at ghibliotech.pod. You can email us where we are uh ghibliotech at gmail.com and actually now that we've reached the end of the selectionary start sending us your mailbag emails we'll be doing a roundup at the end of the series as we always do so we want to hear your thoughts on these films your memories your controversial opinions your rankings anything you want to say let us know um you can keep up with all of us individually too if you want to uh so steph's on twitter at underscore steph watts michael's there at michael j leader and you can follow Jake at Jake H. Cunningham. Ghibliotech is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill and Steph Watts. Our music is by Anthony Ying. Hello listeners, thank you for sticking with us through the credits. If you stuck through the credits of Coraline, you are presented with a very strange message that comes on screen which says, for those in the know, jerkwad. So jerkwad was a secret password that you could use on the Coraline website. And if you entered that password, you got the chance to enter into a competition to win a pair of special Coraline Nike trainers. I wonder how they sorted out that crossover. Um, this was only the first of many uh, Leica and Nike crossovers every film from now on will have their special Nike trainers I recommend looking them up because um, 
I think they look kind of horrible, <laughs> but look, certainly, <laughs> there's certainly something to behold. Check them out. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 